This is Africa Digest. Your time is 1700 hours Central African time. You listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. And you can find us on 802 and the DSCV audio bouquet. Okay. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumela Lezondi. I'm with Joala Netulo, Wisani Matebula, and Neto Chamane. Your top stories. Gambia's Ministers of Finance, Foreign Affairs, Trade and Environment resigned from President Diagame's government on Thursday as Thursday deadline looms. The University of Maiduguri in the capital city of Nature's Borno State becomes the first institution of learning to be attacked by Boko Haram. But first, let's get the news. Here's Joala Netulo. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. The Gambia's top judge has pulled out of hearing a bid by President Yaya Jame to halt the inauguration of President-elect Adama Barrow later this week in a blow to the incumbent head of state. The small West African country has been plunged into political turmoil since Jame disputed Barrow's December election victory and refused to cede power. Jame has lodged a challenge to the election result with the Gambia Supreme Court and last week filed a fresh injunction to prevent the Chief Justice from swearing Barrow into office. Earlier, Ministers for Finance, Foreign Affairs, Trade and Environment have reportedly resigned from incumbent Jamais government. South Africa's ruling ANC's National Working Committee has reiterated its call to its structures and members to hold off on pronouncing on who should be the party's next president. The party has been battling to keep the succession debate under wraps after the ANC Women's League pronounced AU chairperson Nkosazana Lamini Zuma as its preferred candidate. Alliance partner Kosatu picked Cyril Ramaphosa and National Chairperson Balekambete made clear her availability for the position. ANC Deputy Secretary General Jesse Duarte says members should focus on the ANC's policy conference in June for the time being. If we're going to be focused on who, who is on what list, we might not shape ourselves to think about whether there are policies of the ANC that are not working and need changing, and the evaluation of policies of the ANC and the impact they have on the lives of our people and that's the conversation that we need that we are having at the present time that's where we are Police in Botswana have launched a manhunt for 15 Zimbabwean fugitives who escaped from a prison in Francistown at the weekend. The inmates managed to escape after destroying the prison fence with manhole cover. Three of the 18 inmates that escaped during lunchtime at Gerald Estates Center for illegal immigrants have since been captured while the rest are still on the run. Botswana police, soldiers and intelligence officers have since been deployed in and around Francistown, including the country's borders. The government of Ethiopia and humanitarian partners have launched the humanitarian appeal for 2017. Ethiopia needs $948 million to help 5.6 million people with emergency food and non-food assistance, mainly in the southern and eastern parts of the country. Rains from late September to November 2016 failed, leading to the current dry spell in the Oromia, Somali and southern regions of Ethiopia. The Commissioner for Disaster and Risk Management, Mituku Kasa 
has more. Well, at the government, the federal government, as well as the regional government, uh, have been providing food and non-food uh, emergency aid uh, for the people. As I mentioned earlier, those who have been affected by the current drought. The food contains the cereal, uh, pulse, oil and CSCB, nutritious food for children under five and lactating and pregnant women. The non-food part contains the uh, emergency health uh, service, uh, water supply for human beings and livestock, as well as forest supply for the livestock and uh, other education materials. And finally, nationwide celebrations in the U.S. to remember civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. have been overshadowed by a mass shooting at a rally in Miami, Florida. The shooting took place on Monday afternoon when gunmen opened fire on people near Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Park and wounded eight people. According to the Miami-Dade Police Department, the wounded included five minors and three adults. Police also said one victim, aged 20, was in a critical condition. For Channel Africa... I'm Jolani Tulo. Always missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on Programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on Listen and enjoy Channel Africa radio. It's as easy as that. Channel Africa radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. Right, it's time is 17.06 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, let's start in Gambia, where Ministers of Finance, Foreign Affairs, Trade and the Environment have resigned from President Diajame's government. This comes as regional forces prepare to oust the veteran leader unless he steps down by Thursday. Jame, in past since a 1994 coup, has become isolated at home and abroad after he refused to accept his December the 1st election defeat to a Position leader Adama Barrow. What should we read into the latest developments? For a perspective on this, we're joined in studio by Channel Africa's Isaac Okomo, who's a producer and presenter of Spotlight Africa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm welcoming you to pr- pretty much a, a, a channel you who work on and already do a program on. But let's um, start with whether there's any truth that Yaya Jame is being isolated um, more and more as it, it gets closer to that deadline that was set by West African countries. No, no, he's been isolated. He's not only been uh, sort of uh, given a deadline by, Af- uh, by uh, ECOWAS countries, but he's been given a deadline by um, the African Union. And with that, the African Union, I think they're going to go to the, they've been to the uh, Security Council, and they've been given a go-ahead to deal with the issue. So, yeah, Jami has been given a deadline. They actually sort of tried to get to talk to him in Senegal. They met in Senegal a number of times. Uh, the big leaders of uh, ECOWAS were there, and they tried to convince him that he stepped on peacefully. He has refused. And on top of that, uh, he went back and he said that he's trying to get a case open against the Electoral Commission in the Constitutional Court. 
where again the constitutional court said they don't have enough judges to listen to the case. So the deadline is going to come, which is uh, January the 19th, the time when uh, the new leader, the elected leader, uh, Mr. Jairo, has got to be sworn in. And to that extent, uh, Mr. Jairo, the AU, sorry, the ECOWAS have actually sort of told Mr. Jairo to remain in Senegal because what is happening now is that in, in uh, the Gambia, the Gambian army have pledged allegiance to the incumbent. And again, with that, uh, the ECOWAS have actually uh, put together a force that's going to invade the Gambia. So basically, we're going to see a military invasion of the Gambia after the 19th of January. Mm. Um, let's go back to the court case that you mentioned. Um, Yaya Jame has said that um, he will not step down until the court decision that's expected in May. Uh, do you not think he's right to do this, to wait for a court decision? Well, I don't know. It's up to the court I mean, to say that. I mean, it uh, depends upon what... Um, the court says the court said that they don't have enough judges until May, but then I think um, the EU did not recognize the, the EU recognized the results because he initially actually accepted defeat, and uh, that was it. But he changed his mind basically. Uh, if I don't know if that's part of something people don't know, he changed his mind as a result of uh, irresponsible statements which came from. Um, um, members of the coalition, the winning coalition, where some of the statements which were very bad was this, that um, people said that uh, they were going to reverse all that uh, Yaya Jam had done. Uh, the first was that they were going to rejoin the Commonwealth. You should remember that Yaya Jam pulled the Gambia out of the Commonwealth. Number two, they said they were going to rejoin the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Uh, Yaya Jam actually stepped out of the International Criminal Court and pulled Gambia out. And again, they went further to say that the first thing they were going to do once they rejoined the International Criminal Court was actually to take Yaya Jami to the International Criminal Court to answer charges uh, of uh, human rights abusers. Yeah, Yaya Jami is known to have actually sort of uh, perpetrated a lot of human rights abusers, killing of journalists, uh, people have disappeared, uh, people have been jailed, and many other things like that. Now, that was the issue which actually sort of made Jami to change his recognition of the election results. Mm. Do you think that what the winning coalition said last year in December, um, and perhaps what's happened to the likes of Charles Saylor, um, African presidents who um, have stepped down in the way for peace, do you think uh, that um, it might scare off other African leaders? Because 2016 saw quite a lot of African leaders extending their terms in office at the moment. We're dealing with the DRC uh, where elections have been postponed, etc., etc. In fact, they're bringing a very, very, very sensitive uh, dimension because, I mean, if you look at what is being offered to Yaya Jame right now, uh, Mr. Barrow has actually said that he wants to see a peaceful solution to the whole question because his win was not an outright win. I think he won by some 50-something percent where that Yaya Jame has got a strong support. It's in the 40s, but uh, still it's quite substantial. So if there is a, a sort of a military solution, uh, the thing is going to divide the society. Now, again, you find that the, in trying to foster a peaceful transition, uh, the AU, the, sorry, the ECOWAS have actually suggested uh, to, they've actually offered Yaya Jame amnesty yeah, from all persecution and also amnesty as far as um, 
uh, his income that is going to get an income his life after his presidency that is going to be guaranteed a very handsome pension and again Nigeria has come up uh, offering him sanctuary in Nigeria yeah with all perks that he's going to get from from from, from the Gambia that was being was being offered um, but uh, then we see that you now with Nigerian offering sanctuary we look at what happened to Charles Taylor. To Charles Taylor. Now, with um, Charles yeah. Taylor, that uh, t- uh, President Thabo Mbeki and also the Nigerian, uh, the AU, and uh, Obasanjo, they actually went to, 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 to Liberia to get Charles Taylor out with all the guarantees. And Charles Taylor was flown to Nigeria. But once he was in Nigeria, things changed. Uh, Obasanjo came, arrested him, and sent him back to Liberia. Yeah, which is very, it's treachery. Basically, I mean to say that, uh, I would say it's treachery, and I'm, I'm very clear about that. You don't all give a person a guarantee of safety, and then you sort of go back and you send him back. So that will actually sort of play a part in all these promises which are being g- issued to African leaders, not only to Yahya Jami. Um, I can we not say that maybe Nigeria has a a different administration now, and maybe that guarantee um, can be trusted and it can stand. Well, who's there to trust the guarantees? I mean, to say when agreements are made, there's somebody, there's a guarantor who's on top. Now, who's the guarantor? And Nigeria's just saying that. I mean, to say they've shown what they could do. Now, that's the thing whereby trust has got to be won. But again, uh, the most important thing that the the, the winning side l- sort of missed when they won the elections was actually to come up with statements of peace and reconciliation, truth and reconciliation. That was the way that should have gone instead of coming with the punitive thing of taking the men to court. And I think uh, it's a tall order. What we are going to, we are just going to see a military intervention. Mm, we've, we've also started seeing civilians oh, leaving yes, civilians the country. Civilians are leaving the capital, uh, going to the rural areas, yeah, and also leaving the country. So that's a sad sign. And of course, ministers seeing that uh, invasion, conf- uh, conflict is imminent. Uh, very prominent ministers are resigning. Mm. Um, we've seen many African presidents um, overstay their welcome, if you will. And the African Union in the past has been criticized for not doing anything about this. Uh, what's different in the Gambia? Well, you see, with overstaying our African um, uh, sort of uh, presidents, the most important thing we should actually understand is this, that uh, most of the people who have so-called overstayed their presidency they came and changed the constitution. Yeah, and I'm talking about the people in the Great Lakes uh, who have actually changed the constitution. They went through the motion, a democratic motion, which, of course, being uh, with the power of the incumbency, they could actually sort of manipulate the whole process that took place in Uganda, that took place in Rwanda. But again, with people who overstayed the presidencies, it's almost a third-term type of thing. Most of those who went through that, they went through the constitutional court, and they went and actually took the constitution to court. I'm talking about um, the folks in, uh, in, in, in Senegal, yeah, uh, where the former president, uh, president, uh, I just forgotten, but he took his case to the uh, constitutional court, and he won his case. Yeah, I say that you cannot actually sort of implement a law retrospectively. But then when he went to the elections, he lost the elections. I mean, again, it was a case of uh, Jonathan, uh, good luck Jonathan. He also wanted to go so-called third term which he argued successfully in court that it was not a third term, the first term was not his. And he's right, because simply like Tabombeki, Tabombeki had uh, three terms as presidency, but the first term was not his, it, was, it belonged to the late President Mandela, yeah, which he finished and he had his two terms. 
And that's the argument which also um, Kruzinza took to court. It saying that uh, the first term it was not a constitutionally, it was not a constitutionally sort of uh, defined term because the uh, Burundi constitution says specifically that the president is going to be chosen through a popular suffrage of all the people. But when he was chosen as a first term, he was selected by parliament yeah. as a transition. Yeah, he took it to the to transitional court and he won his day. Yeah, yeah. and that's, so that is it. So basically we find that uh, these are things which are taking place. Uh. But I think Africa and Africans, they've actually got no way. They've got to legitimize their third term or whatever through s- either the court or a constitutional process mm. of a referendum as is happening now. And obviously in this case, um, he had actually even accepted defeat. Yes, so accepted defeat, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, trying to go through the, uh, through the court. Yeah. And again, the courts are not independent in Gambia. Most of the judges, the Gambians are known to be people who have actually sort of um, excelled in the justice uh, field uh, or in the legal field. Most of the Gambians are very big uh, legal uh, specialists, yeah. But then you find that most of the judges, the big judges of the Gambia, they've gone out. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. Instead, they've got expatriate, uh, mediocre judges who have come in from Nigeria and other West African yeah. countries. And these are, can be manipulated and have been manipulated by the uh, by, by, by President Yaya Jami mm. and his actually sort of depending upon them. Yes. Mm. Um, and there's four ministers now that have resigned. Um, would you say they're taking a stand? Is it for self-preservation? Is it because they know there's a, a military intervention looming? Or, or wh- why are they resigning now? Oh, yes. It's for pre- uh, self-preservation. You're resigning now because basically would, I mean, the result of what's going to happen is imminent. I mean, to say that uh, the Gambian army is small, it's going to be defeated, it's going to be put down, and the army itself is divided. That's something that people do not know. That part of the army which has pledged, uh, which has pled, uh, pl- pledged uh, allegiance to Yaya Jami, it's actually his countrymen. And it was a presidential force uh, made up of mercenaries, basically, who are from Senegal. Yeah, his ethnic, uh, the, the same ethnic groups, his tribesmen. But the good part of the army does not support him. But now these guys, they see that uh, with the defeat of that army and the arrest of Yaya Jami, the whole cabinet could be arrested for treason uh, or sedition or whatever it is. So they're actually jumping the boat. You know, so when the bo- before the boat sinks, all the rats jump out. And so that's what is happening now. Yeah, but there's still a possibility that um, he might actually remain. Um, let's say there is that war um, that is looming. And his side of the army wins that war. Oh, no, never. It will never that will never happen. Mm. It's a never, very big never. Uh, the Gambian army is small. Yeah, and they don't have the resources. Uh, it will never happen. I mean, his army is just an infantry army, which could and is just sort of structured to terrorize civilians. I mean, so it's not the first time that the Senegalese are moving into the Gambia to put on the army. It took place under uh, Dauda Jawara uh, some years ago in the 80s when there was a mutiny uh, which actually toppled Jawara. The Senegalese just moved, walked in, I think it took them about two to three hours to put down the army, mm. and the army hasn't changed. The Gambian army hasn't changed since then. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It's a cash-strapped country which cannot expand its army. Yeah, the army is good when it comes to dealing with civilians, but mm. when it comes to dealing with uh, 
another army uh, you know, they will not be able to do it there's no way that army could actually sort of withstand an ECOWAS force now what options are open to yeah Jame he has been um, offered asylum in Nigeria we've looked at the possibilities there and the fears obviously because of what happened to Charles Saylor well, um, you know, yeah so what other options are open to him well, he's got no options, basically. I mean, to say that he had one option is actually to accept the uh, offers that were given to him, yeah, with a guarantee of a peace and reconciliation thing there, and uh, immunity to any to any sort of um, uh, d- charges, yeah, to charges. Yeah, they gave him that offer, should have taken it. Mm. But since he's refused now, if they're going to remove him by force, now that opens the door to actually taking him once the president, the new government is formed, charge him of treason and not even charge him there because basically to charge him in the Gambia it will actually cause problems is to take him to a court outside which is the ICC as happened to Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor could not be charged in the in, 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 in Liberia so they opted for the way out when the UN came and formed a, 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 a tribunal which charged him which is a very controversial tribunal yeah, because you cannot mm. get into that, yeah, because uh, things are coming up that basically the thing was almost something like a kangaroo court. Mm. Mm. All right, so thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. All right, so that's in that day. It's Akomo. He is the producer and presenter of Spotlights Africa right here on Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1722 Central African Time. Now, the University of Maiduguri in the capital city of Nigeria's Borno State has become the first institution of learning to be attacked by Boko Haram terrorists in retaliation for the success of the Nigerian army in dislodging the group from its operational enclave inside Sambisa Forest in the northeast of the country. The twin attack, which took the lives of five people, happened inside a mosque as Muslims were leaving their first prayers of the day. Channel Africa correspondent in Lagos, Collins Atohangbe, reports that Boko Haram has carried out four attacks since the beginning of the year, causing mass death in northeastern Nigeria. From all indications, the success of Nigeria against the sect in Sambisa Forest, where they operated from in the past, has made them change tactics to a guerrilla style, making it very difficult to pin them to a specific location with a number of them having been arrested in places as far away from the epic center as Lagos, the Borno State Police Commissioner Damian Chuku calls for vigilance, saying the war against terrorism has entered a new dimension with the attack on the University of Maiduguri. We are now in a guerrilla war situation. In the mosque, you don't know who is praying next to you. In the church, you don't know who is sitting next or praying next to you. Even in a hold-up, you don't know who is parking. So people should be very wary of people around them and be more security conscious. The incident of January 16 happened at about 5 a.m. while Muslims were at prayers in a mosque inside the university. The attack took the lives of five people, including that of a professor of veterinary medicine, Ali Umani and the seven-year-old suicide bomber. Amesatomi of the Bono State Emergency Relief Agency says the incident is the first on a university. This is the first time we recorded a suicide 
bombed in, in the university premises. So it's very unfortunate. There are about 15 that sustained injuries that were evacuated by joint team of state emergency management and the national emergency management agency to the hospital and they are now responding to the treatment. I think there is a need for us to improve the security vigilance across the university premises. Despite the successes recorded against the sect in the battle to reclaim Sambisa Forest, a retired officer of Nigeria's Department of State Security, who has spent most of his working days in the Northeast, says it would be imperative for all security agencies to close ranks and work as one. The government should continue to improve on what they are doing presently, ensure that they continue to get more intelligence especially the need to build synergy among the security agencies so as to be able to work together on the intelligence that they have. It's situations whereby a particular agency is sitting solely on needs will not really help them to be able to utilize what they have now because each agency have their own limitation. When we're dealing with situations like this, it's largely intelligence-based and the organization with our resources is the DSS. So the more information they have at their disposal, the better for them to be able to do their job very well. But we also need to understand, you know, when you're dealing with organizations like this, what you start seeing them is attacking soft targets like we have seen. The attack on the University of Maiduguri is about the fault to have been carried out by the insurgents since the beginning of 2017 in the northeast of Nigeria. The group's member seems to have unending supply of necessities, including funding, to maintain the streak of attack which it has been able to carry out since it was dislodged from Sambisa Forest. Again, Shei Adetayo says they have ways of raising funds that should not be surprising to anyone. Now, those people have means of raising funds. As we're speaking, they are raising funds. And these funds are channeled into three major areas, recruitment, armaments, and then welfare. So they'll be recruiting them all. They'll be buying ammunition and they'll be providing welfare. Just like every other terrorist organization in the world, they have various means of getting money. They kidnap. They rob, you know, they go on rampage, clear communities, tilts from them, and they still have connections with other groups that are providing resources and other people within the society that are big shots that really don't know them yet that find a way of channeling funds or resources to these people. I won't be surprised when you see people, multi-millionaires that are sharing the same ideology as those people. And it's, it might not even be Nigerians, it might even be people in, in, from other countries that believe that um, what those people are propagating is the right thing. While the injured 17 are receiving treatment at the University of Maiduguri Teaching Hospital, President Muhammad Buhari says the terrorists are guilty and deserve punishment from God and man. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am calling Satohengwe for Channel Africa. 1727 Central African Time, the arrest of an alleged ISIS member, Abu Osama, in Turkey last month while on his way to South Africa has once again heightened fears that the country could be under increased threat of a terrorist attack. The suspect was allegedly planning an attack in South Africa. Channel Africa reporter Kumbero Munjarere compiled this report. It has been a month since Abu Osama was arrested in Turkey, but news of his arrest emerged this past weekend, sparking renewed fears that South Africa might be facing an increased terror attacks. According to Iraqi intelligence officials, Abu wasn't coming to South Africa to recruit for Islamic State group, but to identify a specific target that would later be attacked. Osama's arrest last month took place shortly after immigration officials at OR Tambo International Airport 
flagged another suspected terrorist entering South Africa from Turkey who was originally from the United States. The two incidents have sparked fresh concerns that South Africa might be facing an increased risk of terror attacks, especially on foreign assets. Iraqi ambassador to South Africa, Sat Kindel, says Iraq had more information on the planned attack in South Africa by Osama, but he could not share this with the South African government until it had signed a memorandum of understanding with Iraq in which both countries agreed to share security information. Intelligence information are in the hands of intelligence and security authorities in Baghdad. And I have been talking to South African authorities since I have assumed this post a year ago and to sign a memo of understanding and agreement between the two countries to share information and also to cooperate to uh, counter terrorism but so far this has not materialized that without signing such agreement i can't see any way that the iraqi authorities would share such information with south african authorities although there have been several terror attack threats issued in south africa previously nothing hectic came out of the threats naim gina executive director of afro middle east center says the latest terror threats should not be taken lightly but questions the motive of iraqi officials around the latest threat when the only thought you have is an ambassador of one country who clearly has an agenda because you know for me the most important part of the story is a suggestion that this supposedly extremely dangerous terrorist who wanted to blow up one of the most well-guarded military air bases in the world, the Injirlik air base in Turkey, and then wanted to come to South Africa, that they will not provide the uh, intelligence about this to the South African government until an MOU on security is signed. So the, the embassy is quite happy to go to the media and give them the story, but they won't give the story to the South African government, even though this guy is such a big terror threat. I'm just saying that all of this makes the story extremely suspicious. I'm not even sure that this uh, Abu Sama person even exists, frankly. Naim says he is convinced South African authorities have things under control. I'm convinced that they actually are on top of the matter. They um, have good uh, monitoring systems. They know what's going on. They know people who are linked to some of these groups who are entering the country, leaving the country. They have a good sense of South Africans that have gone to join ISIS or other groups. And I think that on this one, I would trust that they know what they're doing. South Africa has a history of porous borders and ease of access to passports, which has previously been exploited by individuals with known links to terror groups. One example is the so-called white widow, Samantha Lutherweight, who used a South African passport under the name Natalie Faye Webb that gave her access to South Africa. Another is the senior Al-Qaeda figure, Fazul Abdullah Mohammed, who had a South African passport on him when he was killed in Mogadishu in 2011. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbaro Munjerere in Johannesburg. It is 17.31 Central African time. It's time for your news headlines. Here's Chola Netulo.
thank you, Swimelele. Making headlines, the Gambia's top judge has pulled out of hearing a bid by President Yaya Jameh to halt the inauguration of President-elect Adama Barrow later this week. South Africa's ruling ANC's National Working Committee has reiterated its call to its structures and members to hold off on pronouncing on who should be the party's next president. And finally, the government of Ethiopia and humanitarian partners have launched the humanitarian appeal for 2017. For Channel Africa... I'm Jolani Tulo. Seventeen thirty-two Central African time. Now, the government of Ethiopia and humanitarian partners have launched the humanitarian appeal for 2017. Ethiopia needs 948 million US dollars to help 5.6 million people with emergency food and non-food assistance, mainly in the southern and eastern parts of the country. Coletto Anjoy. Rains from late September to November 2016 failed, leading to the current dry spell in the Oromia, Somali and southern regions of Ethiopia. All these are pastoralist areas. The Commissioner for Disaster and Risk Management, Mitiku Kasa, says 5.6 million people are currently affected. It is uh, late onset, erratic distribution and uh, early cessation of the seasonal rains, which was expected in the pastoral in lowland areas of the country. It has resulted in shortage of water for human beings and livestock, shortage of pasture, as well as food insecurity across those areas which have, which have been affected by the current drought. Unspecified number of livestock has been reported to have died so far because of lack of food and water. The commissioner further explains that the government is currently using its own resources to help the drought victims as it awaits quick positive response from the international community. Well, the government, the federal government as well as the regional government uh, have been providing food and non-food emergency aid uh, for the people, as I mentioned earlier, those who have been affected by the current drought. The food contains the cereal, uh, pulse, oil and CSB, nutritious food for children under five and lactating and pregnant women. The non-food part contains the emergency health service, water supply for human beings and livestock, as well as forest supply for the livestock and other education materials. The government has requested its health sector to oversee possible disease outbreaks in the drought-affected regions. Ethiopia is still recovering from the 2016 drought that has been registered in the country as the worst ever in decades. The drought caused by the El Nino effect hit the northern and western parts of Ethiopia. Coletta Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Activity has ground to a standstill in most towns in the English-speaking regions of Cameroon after negotiations between the government and striking trade unions for schools to reopen failed. Trade union leaders have been asking for a federal state to be created and the release of people arrested during violence that emanated from the strike action. The teachers are also asking for reforms to stop the influence of French and what they call practices that relegate English speakers to second-class citizens in the bilingual country. Mokikinzika is in Yaounde.
Few youths have transformed Commercial Avenue, a popular street in Cameroon's northwest regional capital, Bamenda, into a playground as shops remain closed and vehicles are out of the streets. Two travelers who have been blocked from traveling for two days now say they do not know where to go and what to do and they are not sure of traveling anytime soon. I arrived here at 11.30. I'm going to Bambili. So at the present moment, I don't know whether I'll have the opportunity to have a vehicle. Maybe I'll pass the night here. I'm from Fumban, singing in the morning, and I'm going to Ndop. I arrived here at 12 o'clock. I don't even know whether I'll have a car. The strike that is going on in all English-speaking regions of Cameroon was called by a consortium of leaders after negotiations between the government and striking teachers failed. The teachers called a strike in protest of the overbearing influence of the French language in the bilingual country. English speakers constitute 20% of Cameroon's population and the constitution says English and French inherited from colonial masters should be given equal importance. But most official documents are only in French and administrators and teachers without the least understanding of the English language are sent to work in English-speaking regions. In response to the teachers' grievances, the government of Cameroon has ordered the recruitment of 1,000 bilingual teachers and transferred out of the English-speaking regions teachers who do not understand the English language. But the teachers asked for the liberation of all youths arrested during the period of the strike for refusing the singing of Cameroon's national anthem in the English-speaking regions, describing it as a foreign song. They also hoisted what they called their own national flag. In a message to Cameroonians last December 31, Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, said all those arrested for destroying the country's emblems must face the law. As the deadlock persists, many families have stocked huge quantities of food that will sustain them for the period markets will remain closed. Nancy Julius is one of them. We receive inside the, the telephone the information that strike will be today. We pay all food to put inside the house to prepare uh, this strike. It's a bad situation, but we don't have a choice. Nijon Frundi leader of Cameroon's main opposition political party, the SDF, says he supports the action but has condemned the military for using excessive force to stop protesters. I said it openly and clearly. I support the teachers in their struggle. I support the lawyers in their struggle. And I called on the soldiers that if people are protesting, move with them and guide them. You don't block them from protesting. You are not guaranteeing their human rights. Is the teachers and lawyers today, tomorrow might be your day. Because there's nobody without pain facing the government. And when this pain do come, can the people concerned sit down and dialogue with those that are grieved? But in Cameroon, we bring the soldiers out, they come with guns, and the gendarmes are there with their guns, and the police are there with their guns, beating and shooting. I told some the other day that the gun is the weapon of the coward. We should take the gun to face the Boko Haram's in the north. But when you take the guns to shoot children who are supporting their teachers, when you send the police 
who are first to call other vandals. They go and break into the houses of the students, get these students out, and rob them up in mud. The most dirty water that comes from people's bathrooms that they bathe with, from kitchens, from toilets, you rob them in. And some of the girls who laid in their bed sick were raped, and yet we call them the future. That is not the future I want to build. Two of Cameroon's ten regions are English-speaking. They have made it known to the state that the strike will continue until they are no longer treated as second-class citizens in the bilingual country that has English and French as official languages. They say they are ready to sacrifice a school year if President Bia's government continues to give them a deaf ear. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yawundi. Serious action is needed right now to stop ethnically based killings in South Sudan, where the United Nations has warned of the possibility of genocide. That warning comes from the United Nations mission in the East African country, which published a report on Monday documenting major human rights violations, which took place over five days last July in the capital, Juba. Fighting erupted between rival forces loyal to President Salva Kiir and his former Vice President Riek Machar, leaving hundreds dead. The UN misreport in conjunction with the United Nations Human Rights Office found that belligerent blatantly ignored international human rights law and humanitarian law. Matthew Wells spoke to the Human Rights Director for UNMIS in Juba, Eugene Nindorera. The findings are that uh, there were a lot of uh, civilians killed, but there were also a number of people who were killed because of the fighting between the two forces. We have highlighted in our reports uh, a huge number of rape cases that we have been able to document it, and there were also lootings and other uh, human rights violations. And there were also uh, the killing of uh, a journalist in uh, one incident near the UN House, and there were also, of course, a lot of people who had to, to flee out of the country and others who became uh, IDPs in, in Juba. So this is really the, the key findings about what has uh, happened in, uh, in July. Are there any specific examples that stand out just to show just how brutal these violations were? We have uh, a lot of them, and uh, we have to say that we, we found that there were also some cases where people were targeted because of their uh, ethnic affiliation. This is really something that is terrible because uh, you should not really uh, kill a civilian only because of his, his um, ethnic affiliation. So it's something that we have observed. They will, they will stop a bus and identify who are not really from who specific people who are coming from a specific ethnic group, and they will kill the person. The rape cases have even continued even beyond this, the five days that I was referring to. There were a number of displaced women and girls coming from the POC side we are near the UN house who were also targeted and, and raped by people from uh, especially uh, uniformed personnel. And have you been able to highlight who is responsible for some of these uh, appalling acts and uh, will they be held accountable? Only a few of them. Impunity and the lack of accountability is one of the key issues that we have also highlighted in the report. Uh, We have seen some progress because the government was able to put in place a commission that makes some investigation about what has happened in terrain. And you recall that in terrain what has happened was also aid workers that were uh, threatened, a journalist was killed, women excluding aid workers 
were raped and there were some of them who were arrested and uh, we expect that they will be brought before a special court according to what the government has highlighted. But compare, if you are looking at the number of people who have committed uh, human rights violations, there is really not much that has been done in terms of uh, bringing the alleged perpetrators before the court and make sure that they are going to be held accountable. And are conditions in terms of security and conditions for civilians improving now in the Juba area? Compared to what has happened, of course, in July, there is a lot of progress. But uh, if we are looking at the overall picture about what is happening now in South Sudan, we, we have a lot of issues in the greater Equatoria, which is out of Juba, like uh, in places like uh, Ye but also in other places uh, like uh, the former Western Equatoria state. So I think that uh, there are some progress in Juba, but uh, the, the situation has deteriorated in other parts of South Sudan. And what does the mission need most now in terms of uh, helping to further uh, calm things down and bring stability and uh, peace to, to the region, to South Sudan overall? The primary responsibility is uh, for the government really to make sure that uh, the civilians are protected and it's really uh, we are doing advocacy uh, with the government and make sure that they are uh, taking their uh, responsibility very seriously. And uh, we are also taking a number of actions to prevent uh, some of these uh, huge human rights violations because uh, there are many observers and we also agree with that, that uh, based on these uh, killings on ethnic lines, this is something, if uh, we are not taking action, serious action right now, this can really lead to mass atrocities. And we want to avoid that. So it's the international community is aware of the situation. And also the government is uh, trying to take a number of actions. And we, we, we want to encourage the government to, to take really uh, clear action and make sure that uh, nothing at that level will happen. There was a commitment just recently by the, the chief of general staff that uh, really they have uh, warned their uh, military on the ground to be very careful and make sure that they are not killing civilians. But we will continue and monitor. But sometimes uh, our monitoring is a little bit uh, difficult because of the denial of access. And it's important for us to have access to all those areas so that we can really monitor the situation and make sure that uh, nothing is, happen- is, uh, is happening to, to civilians who are living in those areas. That's Eugene Nundera, Human Rights Director for the United Nations Mission in South Sudan, speaking to Matthew Wells of UN Radio. Your economic news now with Rosanna Matabula. In the economics news uh, this hour, Team South Africa, led by Deputy uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, the World Economic Forum will highlight the work that has been doing towards inclusive economic growth and reducing the high unemployment rate in the country. It will also use the meeting to restore investor confidence. Team South Africa has been trying to convince the investor community that is committed to boosting growth and dealing with some of the do- domestic challenges. Speaking at the pre-Davos meeting, the Minister of Economic Development, Ibrahim Patel, said South Africa would look at ways of dealing with the current global challenges. The team actually getting stronger. So the idea is that we need to take the responsibility and co-responsibility of keeping the economic ship going as Team South Africa, 
build on the good things that we're doing that my colleagues have actually mentioned. Now, much of which, by the way, you don't cover too much, okay? Just as feedback. Because there are good things that are happening uh, in our economy. The one thing we must be very frank is that those good things are not scalable at this point in time. In other words, they're not at a scale level to be seen in the GDP number. South Africa's mining production fell more than expected in November. According to figures released by Statistics South Africa, mining output declined by 4.2% compared with a decline of 2.6% year-on-year in October. This is a much larger decline than the 1% fall predicted by most economists. The poor performance is uh, driven by a platinum group of metals declining by 10.8% in November and gold production by 9.4%. Statistics South Africa survey statistician J.P. Terblanche. Assumptions can be that um, the effect of the mine stoppages, safety stoppages, I think is starting to take a toll on the, on the mining industry. Overall, mining is standing on a negative 5.2% for the 11 months ending November. So in all likelihood, uh, mining will end in a negative um, for the year of 20, um, 2016. But that's just one month of data still outstanding, then we can definitely make a conclusion. Zimbabwe's largest mobile phone company, Econet, plans to raise 130 million US dollars from shareholders to pay foreign loans and are struggling to settle due to severe dollar crunch. Econet will raise money via a rights issue. Foreign currency shortages makes it difficult for the company to pay foreign loans. The Reserve Bank of uh, Zimbabwe introduced a bond note currency to ease chronic uh, cash shortages, but long queues have remained at banks, which impose stringent li- limits on cash withdrawals. In Angola's crude oil exports are expected to fall to 1.5 million barrels per day in March. Total exports in March are expected to consist of 49 kegos, totaling 46.9 million barrels, which is up from 48 kegos, carrying 46.2 million barrels expected in February. The March barrel per day figure is lower than February 1, as March is a longer month. South Africa's Mr. Price store has reported lower third quarter sales as weak economic growth and tough competition forced it to sell its clothing at lower prices. Clothing retailers in Africa's most advanced economy have reported disappointing sales. The difficult trading environment has extended into the second half of the year. Weak economic growth and low consumer confidence contributed to strong competition between the retailers who in turn lowered prices and sold goods on promotion. Other South African clothing retailers, uh, Woolworths and uh, Trueworths, last week flagged a drop in half-year profits. Financial indicators. The dollar 13.58 South African rent 10.50 Botswana Pula at 9.90 Zambian Kwacha also trading at 0.82 to the British pound and 0.94 against the euro. Commodities now gold is at $1,205, platinum $984 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $55.73 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. Seventeen fifty one Central African time. It's time now for sports news with Neto Chimane.
Good evening, sport fans. With the latest Channel Africa Sport News at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. Starting off with cricket news. South Africa batsman A.B. de Villiers has ruled himself out of the team's three-test series in New Zealand in March, but insists he's not retiring from the longest format of the game. De Villiers has recovered from an elbow injury which kept him out of the recent home test series wins over New Zealand and Sri Lanka, as well as the away victory in Australia in November. He has handed over the test captain's to Fav Duplessis and admits that playing at the 2019 50-over World Cup in England and Wales remains his career priority. Moving on to football news, the reaction of fans and the media in Gabon to their sides opening one-all draw with Guinea-Bissau at the 2017 African Nations Cup Finals has been one of despair. But fortunes can change quickly and coach Jose Antonio Camacho will expect a reaction from his players in their second Group 8 clash against Burkina Faso on Wednesday. The Panthers were lambasted for a leg lustra display in front of their own fans, having failed to kill off West African minnows early and then let their lead slip late on. Defeat to Burkina Faso would likely end their hopes of a quarter-final place, though in a pool in which both opening matches finished one all. Qualification for the knockout stage will be decided only in the final round of games. In golf news, Tiger Woods is expected to make his return to PGA Tour in late January, and Sergio Garcia is curious to see how the 14 times major winner will handle his latest attempt at a comeback. Garcia turned professional in 1999 and bore witness to the Tiger Woods era of domination, but his American rival has battled crippling injuries and a complete loss of form in recent years. I don't know. It's I think it's a big question mark. Um, I think that uh, probably not even he knows uh, because of because of the problems he's had uh, physically the last three or four years, I guess, uh, two or three years. He uh, he's barely played any any golf. So obviously uh, he played uh, at the end of last year uh, at the Hero Golf Challenge, and he showed some good things. Um, also, he he struggled a little bit, but it's normal when when you haven't played competition for that long. So we'll see. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how how everything goes and uh, how he reacts and you know how he feels on the golf course. Garcia regarded 2016 as one of his most productive years as a golfer, breaking a four-year winless drought on the PGA Tour with his second Brian Nelson triumph in Texas last May, before playing in the Olympics and for Europe in the Ryder Cup. Yeah, no, it's great. I think I think two great captains uh, with Jim, uh, a lot of experience there uh, for the for the US team, and obviously with Thomas uh, on our side. So you know, great two great captains. I'm sure they're they're going to do a great job, and uh, they're they're excited uh, about the the road ahead. Uh, you know, the year and a half that they have along uh, come into uh, a lot of the things they have to do, and. Um, as players, we're also excited to um, to play for them and, and see how, how we can perform. This year, his playing schedule is far less frenetic, but the 37-year-old is refusing to set specific targets other than to play well and try to put himself in the mix of victories. Garcia added that he was looking forward to playing in the Singapore Open and to playing in tomorrow's Pro AM. Awesome. Well, I've That's seen right. it. Uh, I've seen, obviously, I've seen that sometimes when they've played the, uh, the LPGA tournament, the LPGA tournament here and... and and some some of the Singapore Opens that, that I've seen on TV, so you know it's it looks like a a, a really a really pretty golf course, uh, you know, with a lot of water and and some uh, exciting uh, exciting holes around there. So I'm uh, looking forward to to see it tomorrow, get a good look at it, uh, be as well prepared as possible for for Thursday, and and then uh, you know have a solid week. And finally, in baseball news, President Barack Obama welcomed the World Series champion Chicago Cubs to the White House yesterday on his last week 
Republic in office. Obama is a longtime fan of the Chicago White Sox, crosstown rivals for fan support in that city. The Cubs' last World Series victory came in 1908 when Teddy Roosevelt occupied the White House. It was the longest drought in American sports. Here is something none of my predecessors ever got a chance to say. Welcome to the White House, the World Series champion, Chicago Cubs. I will say to the Cubs, it took you long enough. I mean, I've only got four days left. You're just making it another one. That brings me to the other thing that was so special about this championship, uh, and that's just the, the guys behind me, the team. They steamrolled the majors this year with a 103-win record. Uh, all you had to know about this team was encapsulated in that one moment in Game 5, down three games to one, do or die, in front of the home fans when David Ross and John Lester turned to each other and said, I love you, man. I said, I love you, too. It was sort of like uh, Obama-Biden moment. Thank you for tuning in to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-seven Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. Gambia's ministers of finance, foreign affairs, trade, and the environment resigned from President Diarmid's government. The University of Maiduguri in the capital city of Nigeria's Borno State becomes the first institution of learning to be attacked by Boko Haram. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, as Pomele Lezondi, producer Lebo Musweu, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails info at channelafrica.co.za, SMS is to plus 27823325905, plus 27823325905, Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. We'll leave you with Amambao. Bye bye.
Ndi chintu choko ndoresa kutita.